Well, this morning we're going to be wrapping up what's called the Olivet Discourse. This extended sermon or discussion is the last public teaching of Jesus' ministry that we have on record. And in this discourse, the Messiah is speaking of things that are near, and he's also speaking of things that are far away. The near-term destruction of the temple in Jerusalem is prophesied by Jesus, and it happens fairly quickly after he prophesies it, only 40 years after his death, burial, and resurrection. An uprising in, in Jerusalem that is met with aggression by Rome results in the temple being burned to the ground. But he is also talking about things that are far away. He, he He talks about the second coming of Jesus. He knows that his life is coming to an end here on earth, but that there will be a time when Jesus, the Son of God, will enter into this earth again, will will come among us, and will come with a different mission, a different mission entirely. He came the first time to seek and save the lost, but the second time that Jesus comes to this earth, it will be to judge the wicked. And so in these verses that Jesus gives, he's going to share with us today some important instructions that he gives to the 12 disciples as he approaches the end of his own earthly ministry in preparation for these near and far events. And so if you've got your scripture, let's read the uh, the passages that we're going to be studying today, the verses we'll be studying. It's chapter 21 of Luke. We're reading verses 34 through 38. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mountain called Olivet. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. God has revealed to us that he is coming Again, we can read about it. We have been told to ready ourselves for that return. And when Jesus does come back, it will have a tremendous impact on every bit of what God has created. You would think that we would take this truth very seriously. But in in honesty, we really don't. At least not as much as we should. We let the trappings of the here and now distract us from what is sure to come. And the result is that even though each passing day draws us closer to Jesus' eventual return, each passing day also makes it a little easier for us to assume that Jesus' return is a long way away and that it's not something we need to see as urgent or pressing. Jesus' second coming gets moved in our brains from the now file, from the urgent file, into the later file in our brains. The I'll get to it eventually file. For some reason, we content ourselves with the assurance that getting ready for his second coming is something we can afford to procrastinate about. Some of us have got procrastination down to a a virtual science. We have become pros at putting off for tomorrow what maybe we should be thinking about doing today. We get that notice in the mail and we think, oh, I'm supposed to smog my car, but it says here my registration doesn't expire for two months. I've got plenty of time. I'll take care of that later. Well, you've got an injury or a, a nagging sickness that won't go away and you think, you know, I, I know it's starting to really get in the way, but 
I'll go to the doctor in two weeks. So I'll make an appointment later. I, I don't have time for that right now. I don't want to pay the copay if it heals itself and it just goes away. So I'll get it looked at later. Or, or you might think to yourself, I'll start saving for retirement sooner or later, but right now I've got other expenses. I've got more impressing matters that need my money and my, and my attention, my priority. So I'll get around to retirement and investing in that, but for now, I, it, it can't be bothered with. The later file in our brains is a big file. There's a lot of stuff that gets tossed into the later file. The problem is that that, that day that seems so far away, so far down the road, has a tendency of creeping up on us, doesn't it? Faster than we expected it to. And we suddenly feel the urgency of being out of time. Jesus knows that fact about the heart and mind of man, doesn't he? Remember, though he is truly God and has always existed in perfect harmony and communion with the Father and with the Holy Spirit since before time even began, Jesus was willing, because of his great love for us, to take on a human nature, to, to take on a body and to live with us here on earth. He became what we are so that he could save us and transform us into what we were always meant to be. And so Jesus knows. He knows from experience. He witnessed firsthand how we deal with time. So Jesus makes sure to warn his 12 disciples and anyone else who might be listening during this Olivet Discourse that if we take our eyes off of the second coming, there are some very real and dangerous consequences that are likely to result from that casual attitude. Verses 34 through 36 record some important warnings regarding mindfulness, regarding the way that we act and the way that we think. Jesus implores us to watch what we do, to watch what we're focused on, what we concentrate on, because you want to be ready for that day that he returns for us. He gives us two bits of information regarding that important day of visitation. Verse 34 says, That day will come upon you suddenly like a trap, now, the sudden nature of the return of Jesus was not new information for the twelve. Jesus had said this to them several times in one shape or form. Jesus had told them of a certain man in chapter 12 who amassed great wealth and tore down his barns because he had so much wealth that he needed, needed to build new barns. He needed greater storehouses for all the great things he had stored up for himself. And, and he said to himself, I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus goes on to say in that, that story that he, we re, have recorded in chapter 12, he calls the man a fool. says, you do not know that this very hour your, your life is going to be required of you. And so that man's end came suddenly. He thought it was far down the road. He was anticipating many more days to enjoy the fruits of his labor. And yet Jesus says, man, if you were wise, you would not just settle into this comfortable idea that you've got plenty of life left to live. We see it in 17, Luke 17, verse 24, where Jesus writes, For as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to another, so will the Son of Man be in his day. In other words, when Christ comes back, it's going to happen in the blink of an eye. We're going to be caught with, with, with great wonder because it's not going to be some gradual thing where Jesus sends you a note and says, you've got two weeks 
I'm on the way, make straight the way, but rather Jesus is going to come quickly. That chapter goes on to say in verse 27, describing when the flood came in Noah's day, he's relating his return to the flood that encompassed the earth in the Old Testament. He says they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given into marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark and the flood came and destroyed them all. Just up to the moments when those first drops begin to fall from the sky. Everyone was just in regular living mode, just doing their thing, walking through life as they did every single day, not expecting God to bring any kind of judgment, and it came in the blink of an eye. The next verse says, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, when they were eating and drinking and buying and selling, planting and building, but on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. So Jesus has gone to great lengths, hasn't he, to make sure that his disciples know that his return is going to be just like that. It's going to be fast. It's going to be sudden. We even see a hint of this in chapter 19 when he's talking about the parable of the minas, the faithful stewards who were given some to invest, and two out of the three were ready when their master came back. They had been faithful with the the money that he had put them in charge of, but one was not ready. He had done nothing with what the Lord had given. And so he had to render an explanation as to why his his master's money was was buried and had done no good. The fact that he stresses this suddenness again and again makes us see how important it is for us to realize that we've got to be alert, ready, and aware. The second detail that Jesus mentions here is that it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. Christ's return should concern every single soul because it's something that every single soul will have to face. We cannot see it as an event only for the wicked to be mindful of, can we? or as a spectacle that only those who live near Jerusalem will be subject to. It is something that will affect the totality of creation. And by the way, that's why we know sometimes in this chapter we've seen it kind of difficult to determine when Jesus is prophesying about the destruction of Jerusalem and when he's talking about his return. But it's clear that he's talking about the return because this return is going to affect what? The whole earth. The destruction of The temple, which happened in Jerusalem in 70 AD, was serious, but it was not so much a global event. It was a localized event. So we know that when Jesus is giving these warnings to his disciples, he's talking about the imminent second coming. Jesus had that second coming in mind, and as we interpret the passage, so should we. We should be thinking about that. We must prepare ourselves for that day. We do not know the time or the hour, But until it comes, we need to live in such a way that we're preparing our hearts for that sudden and worldwide return. There is something very important at stake here if we do not heed these warnings. If we get distracted by the world, if we procrastinate and put off the second coming and thinking about that and meditating on that to a different time, there's something very important at stake. Our very heart Remember how Luke has described the heart and and the different passages of Scripture that tell us what Jesus thought of the heart. In Luke 6.45, Jesus described how a good man brings good things out of the good that is stored up in his heart. 
to Luke, the heart equals the inner man of a person out of which the attitudes flow and the values of life come. The Romans would have referred to that as the mind. They believed that was the locus of a person's consciousness. But, but Luke chooses to use the heart. I think because he saw it as more than just a mental exercise, but it was also the, the seat of our affections. An evil heart produces critical and judgmental attitudes, says the scripture. Doubts come from the heart and wickedness come from the heart that is fixed on the wrong things. But a good heart, a good heart has the potential to produce good fruit, doesn't it? And so we are to guard this heart that God has given to us and we do that by being watchful of his return, by having it in our mind by caring about the fact that Jesus will come for his church. If you did not watch yourself, if you procrastinated in, the regarding, in regarding, regards to the return of Jesus Christ, you will find yourself weighed down. Now, there are a lot of reasons I know why people come to church on a given Sunday. Some people just come to church because they're just being obedient. They know the scripture says you're supposed to gather together on the Lord's day. You're not supposed to forsake the gathering of the saints. Uh, for some of us, we come because we love to praise the Lord. We want to we give Him glory. We want to proclaim how good He is. We want to do that together with one another with one voice. Others come because they love the fellowship of the believers. They come because they need that accountability. They want to they look out for their brothers and sisters and they want to be looked out for. Some come because they desire to serve. They know that the Holy Spirit has given them gifts that they are to use for the health of the body of Christ and they, they want to come each Sunday to be engaged in that. But, as good, but a good many of us probably come here in part hoping that the love and truth of Jesus Christ is going to help lift some of the burdens that we carry on any given Sunday. You have hope when you remember the words of Jesus spoken in Matthew chapter 11, 28 through 30 that says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Many of us enter into these doors and we've got so many things weighing heavily on our consciences, so many responsibilities, so many concerns, so many things we wish we were in control of, but as much as we would struggle to get control of, they seem out of our control. And by coming to the house of God, we remember who is in control and it relieves our anxiety. It gives us a fresh view of the hope that has been won for us by Jesus Christ. And Jesus recognizes that fact. He knows <clears throat> how exhausting it is to have a burdened heart. And he desires to spare us from some of that agony of being heavy laden. But take note, pay close attention here to what Jesus identifies as the kinds of burdens we should guard our hearts from. The burdensome weight that Jesus warns us about is, is not described as bad fortune. He doesn't say it's our sickness or our poverty or our disappointment in not getting the things that we want to get or that we think we deserve. There are, in fact, three descriptions of burden that Jesus gives to us in verses 34 and 35. The first of which is dissipation. 
If our eyes are not fixed on the coming of Christ, we run the risk of being burdened by dissipation. Watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down by dissipation. Now that's not a word we use a whole lot in the English language today. If you told your friend you were struggling with dissipation, they might tell you to eat more fiber. (laughs) What does dissipation mean, right? It refers to excess. Dissipation describes overconsumption. It means that we become self-indulgent. We become wild with our choices. We don't have limits to the things we pursue and enjoy. That is dissipation. Because of the nature of dissipation, it also implies wastefulness, that we are not being focused, that that excess leads to unuseful living. Someone who struggles with dissipation is prone to to flittering away what is precious and should be stewarded with care and thoughtfulness. So, if you uh, have found yourself binge-watching your favorite show on Netflix for eight hours straight, that would fall into the category of dissipation. If you often are sleeping until noon and then finding yourself more tired than if you would have gotten no sleep at all, that would fall into the category of dissipation. Eating so much that you find yourself sick when you're finished. That that would kind of fall into that category of of dissipation. Taking a good thing and exaggerating it to the extent that it becomes toxic to yourself. We have, I think because in part, we have this great strong ethos for freedom as Americans. Freedom is, is, is so precious to us. We have a tendency to fall into the, fr- the trap of believing that freedom is the most important thing. To have a, a license to do whatever you want to do is the goal of many Americans. They want to achieve enough financial freedom that if they want something, they can just buy it. Or if they want to go somewhere, they can just go there. They don't don't have any boss that tells them what to do or not to do. They're absolutely free and able to use their time in this life however they desire to use it. But that kind of freedom, while it is so appealing to so many and is the apple of the media's eye, is not really as much of a blessing as we would think it is. We should remember the words of the Apostle Paul who writes in 1 Corinthians 6, verse 12, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. You see, in speaking with the Corinthian church, a church that also relished its freedom, Paul was warning them of this very problem that Jesus is bringing to light here in the last part of chapter 21 of Luke that when we desire freedom as the utmost thing in life, then we will find that that freedom can often begin to own us. It can dominate our minds. Our desires can become like idols to us that then take the place of our God and rule our thoughts and rule our time and rule our money and our resources. There is a problem among American believers of of having that I-do-what-I-want mentality. of of wanting to forsake all sorts of boundaries so that you seem like you have more freedom. But the opposite is actually true in practice. When you forsake all boundaries, including the ones that are good for you, the ones that God has given to you, you're going to find yourself burdened by the weight of the consequences of your unbound living. 
God does not give us instruction and law to hinder us as people. So many people think of Jesus as this great big referee in the sky with a whistle. He blows every time you start to have fun. But that's not what God does. God gives us his law because it is a blessing to us. It shows us what is really good and what is worth pursuing, what is worth loving. And when he brings these these gentle boundaries into our lives, he does us great good by saving us from the harm that comes when we live in a way that doesn't match the character of our God. And so we can be burdened by our own freedom that runs away from the, the, the authority of our God and, and gets us into trouble and creates chaos for us and makes us slaves to the idols of this world. Secondly, we might be burdened with drunkenness if we forsake the, the, the concentration and focus on the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, drunkenness, it, it means more than just consuming alcohol, right? Drunkenness itself means the forsaking of sobriety. When one is not watchful of his own heart, when one is not protecting his heart, and when his mind is not fixed on the things of eternity, he's often going to find himself drawn to the practice of what we could call truth dilution. That's what drinking is. That's what using drugs is. It is truth dilution. Drunk, drunkenness is a way that man chooses to react to his dissatisfaction with reality. An individual, in a sense, doesn't, usually this conversation doesn't have internally, but basically what they are saying is, I don't like reality, so I will consume some kind of drug or drink that will change, or at the very least, distort my reality. I get to live then for a little while without the cares of my sober life pressing in on me. I get to pretend that life is a lot easier than it really is. This drug, this drink, is my relief and my peace. But there's a major problem with that coping mechanism, isn't there? What is real then becomes even more burdensome in comparison to the lie of my drunken life which to the mind dulled by intoxication is more carefree and uninhibited. You see, the life that God has given to us, the life we must at times struggle through and endure, becomes unbearable when we have this alternate fantasy that we can run to and just escape from reality from. And then the, the, the life problems that you have that were big before now seem all the bigger. They seem all the more overwhelming. And an individual finds himself running more and more to the escape valve and dealing less and less with the true struggles of their life, which might become better if they sought the Lord. The fantasy, though it is not real, then makes an individual long all the more for a reality that does not exist and cannot be obtained. What began as an escape has now poisoned what hope I have of learning to appreciate and enjoy the life that God has actually given to me. Do you see what a crafty deceiver the devil is? This enemy that we have that loves to do everything he can to twist God's blessing out of our hands. When he gives us what seems to us to be peace and relief, but in fact is nothing more than a toxin that accelerates our death. Don't take my word for it, friends. 
Observe the people around you in this world. If you're brave enough, look in the mirror and observe yourself. Take note of your own habits. Even if it is not a chemical or a drink that you go to, don't we have a tendency when we get overwhelmed and frustrated to feel the need to escape to some temporary fantasy, some other world that isn't this world rather than running to the Lord God? This can very easily lead also to addiction which is a heavy burden in and of itself because it creates a bondage on a mental and chemical level that makes you worship the thing that your body has come to depend on and will compel you to go to unfathomable lengths to obtain that thing that you're addicted to. That alcohol, that drug, that rush of endorphins that you get from that fantasy escape that you run to become your primary love. And everything else in your life will bow before it. Your dignity will seem a small price to pay to get your hands on that feeling that you are convinced you need to experience in order to have relief in life. Drunkenness in all of its shapes and flavors creates an incredibly heavy burden. A burden that presses down on man and woman and encumbers the life of its victim. Creates a lingering dissatisfaction for all that is real in life and it renders you unable to trust the Lord as you need to trust him so friends keep your mind keep your eyes and your sights on the return of Jesus Christ know that that return is the hope of your peace and not some liquid sitting in a bottle on your shelf there is no true peace in escaping to the things of the world which will one day burn as well you're just shifting your despair but when your mind is set on the things of Christ and you're, you're, you're focused on what is eternal and what matters, you don't need those escapes, those fantasies to convince you that you're okay because you are okay. And we'll talk more about that later in the sermon. There is a third burden that, um, <clears throat> that could come upon us if we ignore the second coming of Christ. And that burden is the cares of this life. These are the secondary loves that we become so enamored with that they overstep their bounds, often without us even realizing it, and they become the object of our worshipful love. If we're not alert, the cares of the world can come to rule us, and that indeed is a burdensome taskmaster. Some are somewhat trivial, aren't they? Who's going to notice my worth? Am I getting credit for my victories and my accomplishments? We become enamored with the affections of other people and their opinions of us. Do my clothes, does my car say the right message to the world about what kind of person I really am? As if the kind of car you drive really says anything meaningful about you. We get so wrapped up in these surface level things and they become so important to us that they dominate our finances and our minds and our, and our time and our thought. Will people think I'm out of touch because my appearance is dated and, and, and out of place in my culture? Is that really what we need to be thinking about? Entertainment, leisure, material things can all be elevated to inappropriate levels and can take much more of our heart than they deserve to take. But some of the cares of this world are not trivial and yet are still dangerous to us if we let them become what they never were intended to be. Sickness. Pain. You notice in the scripture that Jesus heals many 
but he doesn't heal everyone. He cares for our afflictions and he knows that we struggle. He has compassion on that, but you'll notice that Jesus didn't just come into the world to rid the world of illness or pain. He came for something much deeper. And there are times when the cares of this world, our health, can become so overwhelming that it eclipses our picture, our vision, of the Jesus who needs to be our God and our focus. True poverty is one of those real cares of the world. We are instructed again and again by Scripture to care for those who have little or nothing. We are to look after those who are vulnerable. But that should not be the number one thing that we think about when we start our day and plan our lives out. The Apostle Paul describes in 1 Corinthians 7 that though marriage is a blessing that God gives to us, even that blessing can be in some ways burdenful. He says that those who choose to live without a wife or a husband are free from the responsibilities of caring for that husband or wife and can serve the Lord freely. It's not in any way to take away from marriage, but even important things, my friends, can overwhelm us to the point where they begin to push God out. They begin to elbow him off the throne and take our focus and our concentration in ways that they should not. So some of these cares are not trivial, but they can be burdensome all the same. And we need to realize that there are more important things than the worldly cares that come to dominate our thoughts and our emotions. In an earlier passage in Luke, Jesus brought a parable to his disciples. and It was a parable of the seed and the soils. And you might remember that there was a particular type of seed that did not reach full fruitfulness. And it wasn't because it fell in bad soil necessarily. In fact, it fell in ground where it was able to spring up and life began, but it wasn't the only thing planted in that ground. There were thistles and thorns and briars that were also in that ground fighting for the nutrients that contained in that soil, sheltering out the sun from that little sproutling. And because of the cares of the world, that plant never becomes mature. It suffocates and dies before it can ever bear true fruit. And so Jesus is imploring his disciples here, keep your eyes on what is eternal and what really matters because it is so easy to get swept away with a current of lesser cares that do not deserve your worshipful love. So how do we avoid these burdens? Part of the solution is to watch yourself. But watch yourselves, lest your heart be weighed down. Now, there, there is great importance and value in surrounding yourself with others who will watch you. That's important as well, right? We are called to commit ourselves to a local church. That's why we consider church membership important here is because there is a great benefit from being around other brothers and sisters who can share life with us and can watch how we live and can see if we begin to drift out from the path, who can see and let us know if our, if our focus begins to wane from the things that really matter. Um, yoking yourself with individuals who also love the Lord, becoming bound together with them is, is critical. It helps you to strive after holiness. And, and when we embrace a willingness to confess to others our sin and to seek and receive accountability from them, that makes us all the more strong. 
But in this text, Jesus isn't pointing to that corporate support. Instead, he's talking about the vital discipline of watching yourself. To actively engage in this type of defense of the heart, you have to do a few things. You have to commit yourself to staying awake. Be aware of the vices and the weaknesses that are particularly tempting to you and might burden your heart. Do a little self-evaluation and be willing to be brutally honest with yourself and ask yourself, where do I tend to stumble the most? Where are the, where are the, the, the stumbling blocks that I tend to not see that I trip right over again and again and again? And to stay awake means to be alert for those hazards, to watch out, to not just stumble through life blindly or rush through life hastily in such a way that you are constantly falling into the same pit over and over again. Keep your eyes open, evaluate your heart, and know when too much is too much. You have to cultivate an honest view of your heart. That means focusing on the plank that's in your own eye rather than focusing on the splinter that is in your neighbor's eye. It is way less threatening for us to be critical of other people and to notice their sin, to to see their weaknesses and their, their shortcomings. It is far more risky for us to turn the lens upon ourselves and upon our own hearts because then we might be compelled to do something about it. We might actually have to change we might actually have to train ourselves to love less something that we love too much. To limit ourselves from something that before we thought was a great blessing to us, but we see when, when we fully evaluate the situation that it really hinders us from our God, it keeps us from living out our faith well, and so it has no good place in our lives. Friends, do not be like so many men and women who are afraid to receive or give themselves honest review of their own weaknesses and needs. We, we try to be very honest in the pulpit here at First Family Church, and I know for some that's difficult. We try to teach the Word the way that it is written to us because the Word exhorts, but it also convicts. It challenges, right? But there are times when that challenge needs to come not from somebody else in a pulpit, not from somebody else in the pew next to you. It needs to come from you. When you can finally say, I recognize for myself that this is something that doesn't glorify God and yet it's in my life. That's when real change can start. When you can evaluate your heart and realize, like Proverbs 17.10, a rebuke goes deeper into the man of understanding than a hundred blows to a fool. Can we even be so brave as to rebuke ourselves? To look ourselves in the mirror and say, you cannot keep going down this path. It has to stop now. Give your life to Christ. Put yourself in his hands. We can't do this by ourselves. You cannot be awake, by the way, if you're not staying sober. Because the enemy uses alcohol and drugs as a huge dose of sleeping medication for us, keeping us from being sharp, keeping us from being alert, and keeping us from being useful to the kingdom of God. If you feel, oh, I'm doing a good job of valuing my heart, but you're constantly going back to this drug that you cannot shake or this bottle that is your escape, then you need to face the facts that that part of your life needs to be dealt with in order for you to be alert enough to follow after the Lord the way you were designed to. Do not allow the overwhelming 
huge, grand scale of Jesus' return to make you think away from it. You know, some of us think, wow, apocalypse, end times, that's, that's huge. I, I can't even fathom it, so I'm just not going to ever think about it. But that's not what being awake means. That means we understand it the best that we can, and even if we don't know all the details, which none of us do, even if we, we can't tell the day or the hour, which none of us can, that our minds and thoughts should dwell on that return of Jesus so much as we can comprehend it. That we can know that evil will be punished once and for all. That the Lord God is going to come and battle against wickedness and put it to death forever. That we can look at that final judgment of the earth as an impetus for us to continue to be diligent in sharing the gospel and talking to others about our faith because He is coming back. So we must be alert and watch for opportunities to share our testimony with others and to help point them towards Jesus Christ. So we are to commit to staying awake. We are also to commit to living focused on eternity. Friends, do not lose track of what you are here for. To give your life to Christ, and we're going to see this in a little bit. I love, I love baptism because of the symbolism it represents. When you take an individual who says, I give my life to Christ and I want the world to know this, you bring them into the waters of baptism and you bring them below the waters. And what does that mean, friends? That means that individual sees their old life as dead. It is, it is in many ways a symbolic memorial service where that individual's old life is put to rest and they see that trusting in Christ is such a transformational experience that as they come out of that water it symbolizes the new life that they are born again in Jesus Christ that what they used to be they are not anymore God is remanufacturing that individual they are transformed what a radical picture of change and, and because this change is so radical, it means that we must now trade our focus. We can't be focused on me anymore. We can't be focused on my goals and my ideas and my desires and my comfort. When I give my life to Christ, I am now focused on Christ and what He desires for me and His plans for this world that I live in and how that plays out in eternity should be of utmost concern to the believer. Do not engage in behavior here on earth that you would hate Jesus to come back and find you doing. If, if you cannot glorify God in your activities, then do, don't do that activity. If it's something that, that does not in some way allow you to, to praise the Lord God or, or to, without a heavy conscience, lift His name up in, prayer, then, in praise, then, then do not engage in that activity. But think more eternally. Keep in mind the fact that He is coming back for His people and do not eat this worldly lie that we've got to live for the moment and, and seize the day. Friends, I don't know where this phrase live for the moment came from, but every person is living for the moment, right? You're alive, and this is the moment. That's, that's a given. But when people live for the moment, that means ignore what you have been and ignore what you are to become and just take whatever opportunity is right here. But the problem with that mentality is, is very, very serious. Being mindful of the future and grateful for the past gives you a context to appreciate the now more fully. You can seize the moment if you want to, but there are going to be more moments down the line. Even if your life were to be over tonight, there's an eternity of moments 
that God has in store for you. And it's either in His presence or very far away from His presence in hell. And that is a reality, friends. So do not, do not drink from this poison that the world is selling that all that matters is the here and now. Get the most from the moment and ignore the eternity when in reality we are a people of eternity. We are sojourners. We are travelers that are moving through this world and do not belong in this world that we are in anymore. We have a greater destination that we are headed to. So commit to living focused on eternity. And then finally, commit to finding your strength in prayer. And friends, this is so important. This isn't just another thing you tack on there because you, as you're a Christian, you got to say you have to pray, right? No, this is Christ's equipment for his 12 and for any who will follow after him. Jesus is saying, listen, if you want your heart guarded, you must, this is imperative, you must be a person of prayer. We don't pray to forget, by the way, as some Eastern meditations teach you to do. Go into your happy place and just forget about the cares of the world and pretend like they're not there. That's another form of that escapism that people who are drunkards go to. It's another form of that kind of denial of reality. So we don't pray to forget. We pray to understand that it is only by the power of Jesus Christ that we can escape the burdens of this world. Think about it, friends. If you were to walk into a bar at any given night, how many people are there because they're hoping that five, six, seven drinks in, the burdens of their life, the things that they have no answer for, will begin to fade into the background? How many business people are working into their 70th hour this week because it's easier for them to put their head down and labor than to do what God has called them to do and go home and be a good husband to their wife or a good father to their children? How many have sat idle on their sofa and watched make-believe stories for hours and hours because watching, something, uh, watching someone else live life is safer than trying to live life for themselves? The people I describe in each of these scenarios want more than anything to escape the burdens of life because they have given up on the hope of a solution in understanding. But there is a terrible problem with those solutions. The world doesn't go away when you leave the bar, when you leave work, when you turn off the TV, and avoiding the problem only makes it worse. Prayer is not your religious distraction technique. It is your regular reminder that you don't have to have the solutions to this life's burdens because one who is greater than you does have that solution. And you have reason to hope, so seek him. You can rightfully smile today. You can let anxiety wash off of you like water when you bring your burdens and lay them at the feet of Christ your Savior. God is God. When you go to him in prayer, you remember that. And you stop this charade of believing that you have utter freedom and can do whatever you want. It reminds you that he has a plan for you, that he has ordered your life in such a way that he might be glorified and you might be blessed. How important is this? Read of any of the great men of Scripture and see them pray. See Daniel when he is, when he is brought before conviction of the lion's den. What does he do? He goes and prays to his Lord God. When you see Samuel and he's struggling with, with the, the affairs of the king, what does he do? He seeks the Lord God in prayer so that God can use him to guide the nation. When Nehemiah is, is afflicted by his neighbors as he's trying to help Israel build the wall of Jerusalem back up, they threaten to kill him, they threaten to destroy the project, what does he do? He gathers the elders together and they seek the Lord in prayer. 
They go to the true source of power because without that, they have nothing. Even Jesus, who is God in the flesh and is still omnipotent and all-knowing, even though he has a human shell that he's living in, spends his time praying. How much more so do we need it, friends? Do we need to be seeking our Lord on our knees? The reality of Christ's sudden return needs to be of utmost importance to us. It's going to come how? Like a trap. Suddenly, people are not going to expect it. You think about that rich fool in chapter 12. You think about Noah and Sodom and Gomorrah and these illustrations that remind us of our need for readiness. And you, you might even think about 1 Thessalonians 5, 2 through 4 that says that, that the coming of Christ is going to be like labor pangs. That a mother is waiting and waiting for her child to come and can't predict when it's going to happen and one day suddenly, labor starts and it's going. And it overcomes. Jesus is essentially telling his disciples there will be a great many people who fall to the natural pattern of sinful man. Do not unknowingly settle for that path especially in light of the great hope that Christ has put before us. Are you tempted? Have you compromised and allowed a sinful pattern to weave into the tapestry of your testimony? If so, friends, awake. Watch yourself and seek the Lord in prayer. Repent and once again think of the great and beautiful return of Jesus your Savior and how that triumph is going to overcome evil with good. That triumph can be real in your life even today. Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 2 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight, meaning burden, every burden and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and protector, or perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The last couple of verses in the passage that we study today are transitional verses. Uh, Jesus is basically saying that the Olivet Discourse is finished. It says in verse 37, And every day he was teaching in the temple, but at night he went out and lodged on the mount called Olivet. That's why this is called the Olivet Discourse. And early in the morning all the people came to him in the temple to hear him. And at that, Luke concludes the teaching portion of his public ministry. In chapter 22... Luke's gospel is going to turn toward the cross. And in the meantime, we're going to take a brief break from the the book of Luke. This will be our last break before we finish up this wonderful gospel. And for uh, a few weeks, we're going to turn our attention to the impact of the reformers who have worked so hard through history to make the church what it is today. And then after that, we're going to spend some time in the nativity um, discussing and, and reflecting on the fact that Christ coming to earth is part of his unity with us. And that's uh, through, the, through the holiday of Christmas. And then when 2016 begins again, that's going to mark our last leg of the journey in Luke where we're, he's going to take us all the way up to Calvary, all the way up to the cross. And so we have much left to learn, friends. I hope you've enjoyed what we've been learning in Luke. I sure have. Um, but for now, what we're going to do is we're going to have a word of prayer. Our band's going to come up. They're going to lead you in a, a song of worship while uh, Ismail and I uh, head out to go get ready for, for baptism. And we will rejoin you after this song is done. But for now, let's bow our heads and have a word of prayer together. God, you are amazing and your word never lies to us, Lord God. I pray that we would take it seriously, take it to heart and see it as the true, powerful, 
a tool that you have made it to be for us, Lord God, that we would read it and hide it in our heart and not sin against you, that we might let it be our tutor that trains us what kind of a God we serve and helps us to know how we can live as a reflection of your greatness, God. I pray, Lord, that you would help us to be mindful of what really matters, that we would not trade in things of utmost importance so that we can have affection for things that are passing and trivial in comparison. Lord, we love you, and we know that you are a gracious and patient God, and so we count on that patience as we strive to be sanctified and and through the power of your Holy Spirit to become what we are not yet. I pray, Lord God, that you would strive with us. May you come when the time is right, Lord God, and may our eyes be on you in the meantime. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.